This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in South Asia Studies. Today, we are talking with S. Anand. Anand is the publisher of Navyana Publishing. He is the co-author of Bhimyana and has annotated the critical editions of Dr. B. R. Ambedkar's Annihilation of Caste and also worked on riddles in Hinduism. He collaborated with Venkat Raman Singh Sham on Finding My Ways. Anand lives in New Delhi. Today, we are talking to Anand about his publication and the book, Annihilation of Caste, the Annotated Critical Edition by Dr. B. R. Ambedkar. Welcome, Anand. Hi, Mahendra. Thank you for having me. Anand, this is uh, one of the most significant books I have read, and I admire that you and your publishing house decided to publish this. I would like to start with understanding a little bit more about yourself, and also about your publishing house. Okay. Before I got into publishing, I used to be a journalist with uh, the print media. I worked for various newspapers, starting with uh, Deccan Chronicle in Hyderabad, which is in South of India, then moved to Chennai and worked for Indian Express and the Hindu. Then for six years, I was reporting on a range of issues from Tamil Nadu and from South of India for a magazine called Outlook, which used to be based in Delhi. Then I got interested in caste and Ambedkar and a whole range of issues related to inequality, which is based on caste in India. Since my university years, which is about 1990, it was my college, 93, I went to Central University of Hyderabad, did my MA in English. And that is when I got exposed to uh, the ideas of Ambedkar for the first time. Yeah. And from... Then on, you know, in, being introduced to the issue of caste was also something that happened on the campus in the everyday lived experience, you know, in, from the hostel, from uh, your everyday interaction with students. What, what a university does, unlike uh, the re- regular society, is it forces a certain kind of association, what Ambedkar calls uh, fraternity. You know, you're forced to interact with people of other communities, whether you like it or not. And that raises questions inside you. And for me, that hostile experience, especially in my BA days and again in my MA to MPhil days, really about three plus two plus about seven to eight years of college and university kind of education, which forces you to interact with others, gives you an opportunity to also unlearn things about yourself. And that is where I met Dalit students, Muslims, tribals, all kinds of people who would otherwise... Uh, given my own upbringing as a lower middle class Brahmin in uh, in Hyderabad, even if you go to school and other places, your parents have a greater control over you because you keep coming back home. Home is a place where they uh, tell you what is good and what is bad. And mostly it's not a uh, abstract good and an abstract bad. It, it's about what is good for you as a particular individual belonging to a particular family and a particular caste. So I've had experiences in my childhood where if I brought a Muslim friend, my grandmother and mother would be anxious about how to serve water. This was after a game of street cricket. You play cricket in the street, you run back home and say, Pani Pilao. And then you realize when you're eight years old, nine years old, you're creating a crisis for the Hindu. And this is exactly the kind of crisis that the figure of Ambedkar begins to create. Took me a while to think through all this. I still haven't uh, arrived at any definite conclusion. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I really admire your publishing house and the, the purpose and the reason how you started it. And you are helping so many different writings to be published through your publication. So from that context to the annihilation of caste and the way you have described it in your book, which is in 1936, a Hindu reformist group invited Dr. B. R. Ambedkar to deliver its annual lecture. Mm. When the group read an advanced copy of the text of the speech, it found its contents unbearable and rescinded its invitation. I would like you to help us understand what was so controversial about this book uh, or, or the speech which became the book. See, what happened since, uh, you need to step back, this is, we are talking about the 1930s. The immediate context for this was in 1930, 31, there were two roundtable conferences. This was at a point where the Congress had already been in existence for over 40, 50 years. It was founded in the 1880s, uh, if memory serves me right, around 1885. And uh, there was also the Indian Social Conference, as it was called, which was founded, which was more about Congress was about trying to tell the British, uh, you're not really bad, but you know, you should give us power, give us power, Indians. And the abstract category of Indians was then people like Ambedkar, Muslims, people belonging to minorities, everybody would ask, uh, who, who are you going to transfer power to? Because before the British came, power was vested in the hands of Brahmins and Kshatriyas and maybe the mercantile class, and which, is, which is the priestly class, the warrior class, and then the uh, mercantile class. Those who were called lowly, the Shudras and Dalits, and it included sometimes women of all categories. They were literally, uh, they literally had no stakes in society or the nation to come. So if you're going to talk about transfer of power eventually from British hands to Indian hands, who is going to get this uh, entitlement? Mm -hmm. So Ambedkar yeah. was pretty handsome. He did his MA uh, and PhD from Columbia University. So Ambedkar had come back and a rare kind of a person for being a Dalit who went all the way there, did a PhD, then also made a stopover at London School of Economics, comes back with a clutch of degrees. And then he is a scholar and an erudite person who wants to take up struggles on the ground for the Dalits. So 10 years before annihilation of caste in 1920s, uh, to be precise, in March 1927, for which preparation was made for four years from 23 to 27, he goes to the town of Mahad, in uh, near coastal Maharashtra on the Konkan side. And then he does something which is in 1927 should be taken for granted, but not. They wanted to go to a public place and drink water. This is like Montgomery in Alabama, you know, trying to say, I will sit in a seat where I want to sit. And you know, the bus boycott and everything that happened in the 50s, 55 onwards in uh, the civil rights movement. So Ambedkar was somebody who talked about civil rights before the term was even used in places like India. So he said it's a basic fundamental human right to go drink water from a, a tank maintained with public funds, with government funds. It's not your private well they want to come to. They're not, they're not saying they'll come into a, a house and drink water. One was talking only about what is in public and how Dalits have no access to these things. So the fundamental question Ambedkar raises and it comes across even in uh, annihilation of caste, is if we cannot walk on your streets, have liberties which are considered common to everybody, then what is it that we will do in this nation? So that's why the social reform, political reform. So political reform was give us power. No, white, person, white person is a colonial person and he has no business staying here ruling over us. This was the traditional rhetoric of saying this is an anti-colonial movement. That's why globally the Indian so-called independence struggle is celebrated as a great anti-colonial struggle led by Gandhi and others. And Gandhi at least came into the picture and started talking about caste. Before that, nobody was talking about caste. Dalits were talking about it. Before Ambedkar, there were several Dalit uh, leader movements across the country who in their own way, they did not go to Colombia, come back with a lawyer's degree, Grayson in London. Uh, they did not have the masterly presence of Ambedkar. They all uh, did their little bad. You have actually captured it really well, where you said in this book offers a scholarly critique of the Vedas and Shastras, scriptures mm. that use regard as a sacred scriptures that sanctions the world's most hierarchical and iniquitous social system. 
the world's best known hindu mahatma gandhi responded to the provocation the hatchet was never buried compare your description to the gail omwed's description about annihilation of caste was a declaration of war on hinduism mm-hmm. its big point was in india the greatest barrier to the advance of untouchables mm. was hinduism itself when he wrote the speech it was such a radical idea that mahatma gandhi has to respond to that mm-hmm. and so from what you have gathered from your research mm. what was the genesis of of the speech what, hmm. what the, was the yeah, argument yeah, 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 which he yeah. created in this yeah so i'll i'll take you step by step 1870s onwards the british start doing the census exercise in india and remember that india was not the divided india that we have now so all of punjab and up to what is now parts of pakistan sindh punjab that whole region and bangladesh and other places were very much part of the larger indian subcontinent and here the population of muslims if you put all this together was quite quite high up to uh, 27 to 30% in what is now punjab why am i bringing in punjab and uh, undivided punjab is because this conference takes place in lahore which is not in uh, post partition india it's in present day pakistan and it was in lahore that the organization called arya samaj was formed so arya samaj comes into existence in the 1880s uh, around the same time as the congress to with the object of trying to say when when british are trying to say how can we give you power you people have child marriage you people have sati you do not allow your widows to remarry you in fact do immolation of your widows and keep them uh, secluded in parda the hindus have a lot of parda even a lot of people like including ramchandra gua talk about uh, the burqa of muslims and how it's bad and all that but indian women uh, including often uh, people belonging to dalits in north of india in the lowest of communities they practice a kind of uh, covering of the face etc so the british took the high moral ground and said we are here to civilize you we are here to give you education so that rankled the brahmins but meanwhile census after census prove that these these are the numbers of hindus uh, and there was this whole communal logic of how do we get representation in a new government or do we need a separate state for muslims and for dalits and others so these were the anxieties so ambedkar jumps into the picture and as does spokespersons of the muslim saying that you cannot count untouchables as hindu or tribals as hindu why would the hindus do that the hindus would do that so that their numbers are looking big and bigger so ambedkar comes into the picture from the 1920s onwards first representation he makes is in 1919 uh, uh nearly 17 years before annihilation of caste and he is constantly trying to argue that the untouchables are untouchables and they are a separate element from the hindus they have no social interaction they are ghettoized kept separately in a different part of the village there is a pro- even today most indian villages follow proper segregation so the dalit quarters is far away as you would know so the ambedkar said if you are kept socially separate how do we really uh, count as hindus and census also drew up criteria he quotes census figures etc and then by 1930 he uh, by in fact by 1920s he has established himself as a spokesperson of the untouchable community across india there are several dalit given his uh, education and given the fact that he can speak english and given that he could uh, debunk other people's arguments about why dalit should not be given representation he had in the eyes of the british and in the eyes of the congress and in the eyes of the muslim league and every other important person including the newspapers everybody used to back then post to be reckoned with ambedkar as a spokesperson so that sets the context therefore he is invited and he takes along with him rattamalai srinivasan from tamil nadu from what was then madras presidency along with him to represent dalits at the round table conference so round table mm-hmm. conference involved a, con- a conference with the british sitting uh, with the prime minister there ramsey macdonald everybody sitting together and discussing what is the nature of the power that should be handed over to indians what how should it devolve among indians so representatives of various communities sikhs muslims anglo indians 
untouchables as they were called depressed classes back then and hindus and muslims everybody went there it was a conference of everybody that's where gandhi goes up fashionably late turns up late completely unprepared and ambedkar says he comes as if he's coming to a vaishnava bhajan conference yeah Huh? Ambedkar is very upset that that man comes yeah, unprepared. Definitely was very upset. And just to add to what you're just saying, yeah. you have in your annotation somewhere, and I found it interesting to mention it here, is that Gandhi moved from truth to truth on Ambedkar's identity and the hmm, motives hmm, for hmm, commitment hmm, to anti-caste hmm. struggle. Because given Ambedkar's scholarliness and erudition and the way he could quote Sanskrit verses, etc. A lot of people, including Gandhi, mistook him for a self-hating Brahmin, which is something I am supposed to be. I'm supposed to, I'm, I'm born a Brahmin and I criticize the Brahmin, so you can call. But whereas Ambedkar was not, so often you can see how when somebody is very appearing uh, sophisticated, the other person thinks he must not be a Dalit or Antichin. Yeah, especially yeah. since you can't uh, discern somebody's. Uh, see, I, uh, that's why caste doesn't work like race. You cannot mm-hmm. look at a person and say this person could be a Brahmin. This people guess, people guess all the time. It gives away when you start speaking. Suppose you start speaking Marathi, uh, like Ambedkar would have done. People might be able to place his accent and say, "Ye Maharkas ka hai, ye Konkan ka hai, Dapoli ka hai." So that's actually a very, very, very interesting point which you're uh, making. If you write, if you write and speak in English, it's going to be difficult for somebody to tell uh, who you are. After the roundtable conference, where Ambedkar wins the separate electorates for Dalits, he manages to get separate electorates for Dalits. Once he gets separate electorates for Dalits, um, Gandhi, everybody signs up, and then later he comes in. Gandhi says, "No, um, uh, Dalits cannot be given. Sep- what does a separate electorate mean? Given that Dalits are position where they are dehumanized and they have to be raised to the level of others, Ambedkar argues that if caste Hindus choose which Dalit will represent a constituency, most pliable and the least resistant Dalit, and say." This fellow will be my representative. So Ambedkar says only Dalits will elect Dalits. It's like saying uh, somebody to the Senate who is, happens to be a black person will be chosen only by black people, and white people will have no say. Once mm-hmm. white people have a say in which kind of a black person goes, they will not choose a Malcolm X kind of a person. They will choose a black who will be like your uh, house Negro, to use a mm-hmm. historical yeah. term. You know, so so they, that's the fear that Ambedkar had. So he said only Dalits will choose Dalits. Second, Dalits will also choose which Hindu will represent them. So the Dalits will choose between, say, uh, if they had to choose between Trump and Clinton, uh, who who is better for them? If blacks had to choose, so it's like that. So we will, we will, but you will not vote for us. We will vote for you. It was unprecedented in world democracy. This kind of a double vote for a community which has been oppressed. Initially, everybody agreed. But later, Gandhi realized that he had given away Dalits as, as a separate electorate. Yes. Then he fasts. So Ambedkar, who's forced, and it's like saying, Mahendra, if you don't agree with me, till you agree with me, I'm not going to drink food or take water. Yeah. That is no way of winning an argument. That is a way of a childish uh, tantrum that you throw. And this kind of a tantrum throwing. I explain in one of my annotations this method of sitting on dharna is an age-old Brahminical practice. When a Brahmin is not given something he wants, he sits and protests before the king and says, "I will protest and fast here till I die." So, the, mm-hmm. and, and, and given that a Brahmin Brahmin is considered the highest caste, if he dies, the yeah. sin will be on the Maharaja or the king. He will grant you what you want. Or let you die. I don't know what really happened. But this is a kind of a tantrum that Gandhi throws, and Ambedkar is forced to give up all the gains that he made in the Roundtable Conference in London in 1931-32. And so that nine, becomes the uh, Pune Pact. That becomes the Pune Pact, which Gandhi uh, himself does not sign. He's very clever. He makes Hindu Mahasabha. So remember, Hindu Mahasabha used to. Prefer to ally with uh, Hindu Mahasabha, Arya Samaj. These kind of people had more respect for Gandhi than for Ambedkar. So by 1932, Ambedkar is pretty heartbroken politically, and also I would think emotionally because that is the if if Pune Pact had not happened and roundtable conferences, what is called the communal award, was implemented, then you would have had a situation where Dalits are deciding the fate of Hindus. 
and they are deciding the fate of themselves. And Ambedkar said, do this for 20 years. Imagine from 1932 to 1942, we could have dealt with the problem of untouchability in a completely different way. So that was lost. So now Ambedkar is thinking, how do we politically negotiate the next stage? And he was talking to various people about conversion. Mm -hmm. And by 1935, he declares at a very important conference in Bombay that it was my misfortune to be born a Hindu. It was not within my hand, but I will not die a Hindu. Yes. So that declaration appears in uh, Times of India and other newspapers back then as a headline. Ambedkar drops a bombshell. Mm -hmm. So the, imagine back then, uh, 25%, 20 to 25% of your population, and we are talking about the big subcontinent, including Pakistan, Bangladesh, everything, were willing to do a mass conversion and go away to India. Not everybody, even those who believe that there is no hope in Hinduism, suppose even 50%, 20% of them went with Ambedkar. Yeah. Then which religion will he go to? Will he go to Christianity? Will he go to Islam? Will he go to Sikhism? Will he go to Buddhism? Buddhism was something that Ambedkar was interested in. But in 1935, around the same dates we are speaking now, uh, today is what, 10th or 11th? 11th. So around this time, Ambedkar was in Amritsar. He made a trip. This was the first invitation from the Jatpat Todak Mandal. Uh, which is the which literally translates as the forum for the breaking up of caste. Right? Yes, that is an offshoot of the Arya Samaj. Arya mm -hmm. Samaj wanted reform without really changing too much of Hinduism. Yes, so Ambedkar believed that reform is not going to solve any of our problems. We need a revolution. We need a complete change. And attended a meeting in Amritsar with the Shiromani Gurudwara Prabhandak Committee, which is the apex body the decision-making yeah. body of the Sikhs. And yes. we have research going on up to 2002-2003, which tells us that Ambedkar negotiated with them. What will you... Because you're losing one religion, you're going to another. After you go to Sikhism, suppose they treat you, converts as separate and they don't marry you, they don't inter, uh, uh, interdine with you. So Ambedkar was... With his son, he went there to talk. So all this was the context for... Writing of annihilation of caste. So he That's believed awesome. strongly. Yeah. What is it that makes the Hindu practice untouchability, inequality, caste and all these things. Or sati or widow uh, burning. All these things. Why do they do that? He says the foundation of this is in your religion. And what is the basis of religion there? Unlike other Abrahamic religions like say Islam or Judaism or Christianity. Which all believe in the book. They are book religions. You know, there's a Bible, there's a Quran. Uh, so, whereas with Hinduism, there is no one text everybody believes in. There are a thousand ways of claiming you're a Hindu. Each caste has his own practice. Each caste has his own thing. Maybe the Brahmins have Vedas, but you know, the Shudras or the mercantile caste, the Banyas, they all believe in different things. Somebody is doing Satyanarayana Puja. So, he looks at all this in his other book, Riddles in Hinduism. He says, how can you say who is a Hindu? What is a Hindu? So Hinduism, the word itself, Ambedkar uh, uses it quite uh, liberally. But he is aware that this Hindu word and this Hinduism as a religion is something that was created in the 19th century during the colonial period. By scholarship, by politics, by all kinds of things. Before yeah, that, so even, yeah. yeah. In, in one of his writings, I, I think it, in, it's in this Annihilation of Caste, where he says that in the Hindu religion, one cannot have freedom of speech. A Hindu must surrender his freedom of speech. He must act according to the Vedas. If mm. the Vedas do not support the actions, instructions must be shot from Smritis. And the Smith, if the Smritis fail to provide any such instructions, then he must follow in the footsteps of the great man. He is mm. not supposed to reason. Hence, so long as you are in the Hindu religion, you cannot expect to have freedom. Arguments around... Hinduism and how Hinduism is strangling the freedom of thought, it, it comes across as, the, as he's making an argument about reasoning has been hampered by, by the Hinduism itself. Hmm, 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 hmm. In fact, says that this is, this a religion, is, a not, uh, is not compatible with reason or morality. Yeah. 
Mm. And he gives you umpteen examples in riddles in Hinduism and other books about how the so-called gods, uh, people who are worshipped as gods, or characters from mythologies who are worshipped as gods, whether it's Rama or Krishna or all these famous gods. And you know, Rama and Krishna are part yeah. of international ISKCON movement. You know, the kind yeah. of things that Ambedkar was attacking became globally popular at uh, various points of time. In his, you know, these are the niceties of Hinduism which are in the West, especially. That is absolutely uh, true. Essentially missing in all of that is that while doing so many good things, whether it's through all kind of the spiritual practices, those are the same people who are not allowing others to live equally in the same society. Mm-hmm. And is the hypocrisy which still exists. So what mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about after that is what is the current state of caste consciousness in Indian society and how the caste system has reformed over a period of time mm-hmm. from your perspective. See, well, I was browsing through the same annihilation of caste uh, which we reissued as a critical annotated edition four years ago uh, to prepare for this interview. And what struck me and what keeps occurring to me each time is at least back then there was some kind of a serious dialogue, uh, even if it was a failed dialogue. You know, Ambedkar is invited for this conference by Jatpat Todak Mandal. Once they read his speech and where he says, you know, your Vedas and your I and, and also because he says, I have decided to leave. I have decided to move on. He says, I am going to quit Hinduism. He declares that in Annihilation of Caste as well. And then he says, we need to put a dynamite to the Vedas and the Shastras, which practice inequality, do not uphold morality or uh, the idea of fraternity. That is, It's completely incompatible with uh, democratic values. That's what Ambedkar feels. So, so at least back then, uh, even if the Arya Samaj and the Jatpat Todak Mandal backtracked on their invitation, at least they gave the invitation and such a kind of speech came out. But today what you are seeing is over the past 60 years, uh, like Anand Teltumde in a new book that we are publishing called Republic of Caste uh, has pointed out that the constitution which Ambedkar did uh, preside over in some sense uh, it did not it did not banish caste in any form it did not under it just said untouch, practice of untouchability is an offense and it is punishable under so and so act but now if you with, but it now did not define untouchability it did not say these are the things which need to be done. Then you can't, caste exists and untouchability alone will go. This is not going to happen. Ambedkar himself says that. But in the constitution, see, writing a constitution is not like writing annihilation of caste, where you're free to say what you want. Hmm? Yeah. In, in, when you're part of the constitution, you're part of a big committee and there are a lot of Hindus, Brahmins, all kinds of people. And it's a negotiated settlement. It's not a personal document of Dr. Ambedkar. So it's no offense to Dr. Ambedkar when we are critical of the constitution, like say Anand Teltumde. What is Teltumde saying? Teltumde is saying that constitution just in principle said equality is important, liberty, fraternity, all these are important. But what did it do to get rid of caste? Nothing. What it did was it said there is something called backward class. We will give them also some uh, constitution will eventually make provisions for the benefit of backward classes. Is that now? Cleverly, uh, Nehru was not comfortable with caste. He just thought caste can be wished away. It is something primordial. It will go away with democracy. That's what he thought. And he did not want to use the word backward caste or caste in the constitution. He kept it as class. It's a euphemism for caste. Now, what, according to scholars like Teltum Day, has happened is over the past 60 years, democracy has become very compatible. Parliamentary democracy in India, where whoever wins gets, I mean, gets if I get two votes more than Mahendra, I win. That's all. And how you win is by manipulating the caste equations of society. And then once you become a legislator, then uh, only the Dalits who are 22.5% have reservation. But effectively, what parliamentary democracy has shown and done over 65 years in India is that it is completely compatible with castes. So every caste has its own association, has its own candidates, whether it is the BJP or the Congress or Ahmadni Party or including Bahujan Samaj Party led by Mayawati, when they yeah. field a candidate in an election, they're going to look at which candidate has winnability according to caste equations. So what has happened over the years is 
caste has become stronger and stronger and stronger than it was in the 1930s. In the 1930s, it was stronger in a domestic, in a in a kind of in a way in which it had not been called to question and uh, forced to be compatible because there was no democracy in the 1930s. Yeah. During the feudal times, during the Maharaja times, during princely times, there was no question of democracy. So one thought that democracy will come and caste might get weakened. But on the contrary, caste has found a complete fit with power. That's a fascinating observation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What I'm always amazed is that how the caste system in India, and I think I'm sure many scholars who have researched this have also been amazed at how this system has gone through the British Raj and survived, gone through Mughal period and survived, survived. gone early Indian freedom struggle and survived, gone through 60 years of Indian independence and survived. And there is something fundamental in the way of creating this hierarchy that somehow holding on its nerves everywhere. And mm-hmm. as you said, it has become more stronger. I think leads to my other uh, thought and the question. In the modern India, there are defenders of the caste system. Yes, yes. You talked about T.N. Roy in uh, yeah. one of your earlier emails about what we should discuss. See, T.N. Roy looks like a freak case. You know, nobody remembers T.N. Roy. And I also discovered him and his article when I was doing research for the annotations for annihilation of caste. But that T.N. Roy kind of mentality is now using science and genetics and all kinds of issues that have come up through science. Even back then, he's actually talking in a scientific language, if you notice, for the defense of caste. And if you look at caste as not just, see, earlier I spoke only about how it's compatible with democracy and electoral politics in India. But in a day-to-day existence, what has happened is you will see that everybody marries within their own caste. And if you take any matrimonial column in India, people talk about, people are not saying I'm a Hindu, I want to marry a Hindu. It's not Mm -hmm. like that. So you will belong to a specific, you will not be just a Maratha. You will be a Maratha of a particular Gotra of something like that. And then you will say, I'm looking for somebody from this. And they're openly giving these advertisements, whether it's on the internet or whether it is in physical newspapers where these advertisements appear. In newspapers, you have clear categories. It will be called Kayasta. And you, you won't even look at that section if you're not interested in a Kayasta bride or a groom. So it is it is not as if only politics uh, and, and mainstream electoral politics has forced caste upon people or is exploiting it. What mainstream electoral politics is doing is exploiting a tendency within society and cultural habits of people. That has not changed because that has never been challenged in India by any politics. So people are allowed to practice caste so much that somebody uh, like a very well-known television commentator and personality like Rajdeep Sardesai, whom a lot of people in the US will also know, who who is very critical of Hindutva at one level, uh, of Modi, etc., uh, three years ago, uh, we are in 2018, yeah, 2015 or something, he tweeted saying that two ministers were inducted into the Modi cabinet and they happened to belong to the caste of Rajdeep Sardesai, which is the yes. God Saraswat Brahmin. Mm-hmm. In fact, he didn't even say, he says two GSPs in uh, uh, into Modi cabinet, a proud moment for GSPs and merit wins, something like this. So he felt that his own community being rep- represented was about merit and not about uh, actual work. Uh, because whether it is Manohar Parikar or anybody, they all continue to support lynching of Dalits and Muslims in the name of cow protection. They are completely into Hindutva. And somebody like Rajdeep Sardesai, who is critical of Hindutva, can set aside Hindutva for a moment and feel caste pride. Yeah. So imagine if a so-called liberal, progressive, public personality, it's like Stephen Colbert in your country around saying, being proud to be white uh, and saying that I'm a proud wasp. 
I don't want. I am. I am very happy when another wasp person becomes a president. Mm-hmm. So this is the equivalent of Rajdeep Sardesai saying that. Yeah. And getting away with it. No, I mean that that that's a very uh, valid point which you are making. Is that even among all the elites mm-hmm. who are uh, well educated, who have researched a lot of this subject, they still cling and hold on to their caste. identities mm-hmm. in in some ways what this leads me to describe is that people derive social values and networks through that caste association Very and th- yeah. there is a value of that network and association and they don't want to lose it and that mm. is one of the critical reason why everybody in that hierarchy wants to maintain that hierarchy because they want to maintain their social influence and structure mm-hmm. is that something in your findings or in your research you see how that cast as a influence in the social network in in my view when i start thinking about this cast is actually a bigger social network than facebook or any other social network ever has totally been. totally and in india you should see that facebook and other social network whether it's whatsapp groups or facebook groups today a lot of dalits are also into facebook and social media doing the running their own websites but if you really see the sec- uh, sectorization and the ghettoization of various communities the jats have their own facebook groups the dalits have their own facebook groups and if you want to start a particular uh, you know tamil brahmin type facebook group that is also there so what has happened in india as you are right in saying is caste is the fundamental way of getting some kind of social networking going on it is a social network caste is a social network so suppose you work in a newspaper like the hindu uh, it's easier to get uh, for a tamil brahmin to get jobs in the hindu and if in 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 uh, andhra pradesh if you are a kamma there are greater chances of getting in the etv you know the enadu empire of various television channels newspapers etc so the core group will remain kamma uh, so several employment opportunities in india are based on uh caste network caste network and what are the dalits supposed to do now the dalits are also supposed to go in and if you have another dalit up there he is supposed to help other dalits so even the dalits are supposed to partake of the caste logic when they get into this whole mm-hmm. and they will do it they have to do it otherwise if there is one dalit officer in a office of 100 others who are mostly brahmin and upper caste he will try to find another dalit who can also be there because there are no numbers so you forced to you forced to because unless see that is why it is not enough if the dalits try to exit the caste system through conversion or through immigration or through any other form of trying to exit hindus it's not that's a valid point and that yeah, has been as long as the brahmins and others continue to practice caste that is why ambedkar is you know look at the cleverness of the title annihilation of caste meaning caste as a concept the entire idea should be annihilated because again another thing he says in 1916 20 years before he wrote annihilation of caste he read a paper when he was just 24 25 years old in new york for an anthropology seminar in columbia university it's called caste in india and in that he makes a very very vital observation caste is always in plural it is never singular so it is always a system of castes So, 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 so you cannot have one caste. So that is why you need to annihilate the entire system of caste. So, so, so that is why you have a situation where Dalits, people will say, "Oh, Dalits are also practicing casteism. Dalits are also doing this. Dalits also within them have caste system uh, hierarchy, etc." It is going. It is inevitable. It is inevitable. Ambedkar himself acknowledges. Yes, that's actually a very valid point, and he has acknowledged it, and many other researchers have acknowledged this specific phenomenon. What I also wanted to touch on is one of the critical things which basically this speech created. Before the speech, Ambedkar and Gandhi were in the arguments and in the debates against each other. um ambedkar was against not just gandhi in the political forum he was against against all most all of congress whether it's radhakrishnan or nehru or many other 
and gandhi was the forefront and his struggle or his arguments in a way were the biggest arguments against the the best known face of indian struggle which was gandhi mm-hmm. and so from that perspective i wanted to just touch base on how do you see gandhi uh, responded to him on his speech and his book mm-hmm. again reiterated and reaffirmed his belief in my view in the caste system which is varna based caste system mm. and how how do you see from based on your research how did gandhi evolved himself and started the movement towards eradication of caste or how much did he do towards that hmm see now i'll tell you gandhi from a very young age of his own since his south africa days was never a upholder of the idea of equality let's be very clear about that he was somebody who looked for uh, a kind of always how is power to be negotiated between uh, those who have it and those who are supposed to have it so even in south africa he felt that he was a superior race person so were, in south africa not all indians were equal there were dalit indentured labor who went from tamil nadu to bihar to everywhere and they were the mercantile communities both muslim and hindu from gujarat and other parts and gandhi went there to lawyer for them you know so he went on an assignment to lawyer and he was only offended that you know in a post office like situation where he enters in durban and he finds that there are two entrances one for people of color one for the whites local whites and he doesn't want to share the entrance with the blacks whom he calls derogatorily kafirs and he writes petition after petition to say that they need a separate third entrance into the post office and he manages to get the third entrance to the post office so this is one of his early struggles and he's about 30 35 years then 35 years old then and the age of 39 he starts getting his friends and others and he manages to gather a bunch of white friends he has a big farm in which black people are not allowed so these kind of interesting things he does in till uh, from in the 1890s to up to 1910 about 20 years in uh, south africa that's what he does but he builds a cult around he manages to build a cult around him even in his own lifetime there are he is like a saintly figure and there are bhaktas around mm-hmm. so he is very clever in manipulation of hinduism and slowly he starts becoming more and more looking like a saint you know he dresses it's a performance you know of act if gandhi was going around half naked ambedkar untouchables anyway of course not to wear clothes is no greatness in not wearing clothes so ambedkar has to dress well like most dalits want to look good and dress well Uh, and most human beings would want to not everybody egotistic attitude of becoming uh, somebody bigger than who you are like gandhi had uh, he would do this so by the time gandhi comes back to india and then he is not talking about caste or any such thing till he realizes there's an upbeat current this once he does this and then after the pune pact after defeating ambedkar uh, inflicting a literally mortal wound on ambedkar he goes about setting a shop called harijan sevak sangh yeah. which means forum for serving harijans which was the derogatory word uh, which dalit see as derogatory he meant it as a patronizing word which meant children of god so the dalits would say if we are children of god what are you are you trying to say that we are bastards we don't know who our fathers are you know this is the kind of anger with which dalits even back then responded to gandhi's uh, pieties ambedkar never used the word harij when ambedkar was requested to write in harijan also he refused to write why because the harijan sevak sang was something in which dalits are not supposed to be members it's like white people starting an organization saying that we will do good for blacks but blacks cannot be members of this organization yeah it is a ridiculous organization and he runs a ridiculous newspaper imagine a white man running a paper in the us called nigger in 1930s he uses it from tulsidas ramayan which is a 16th century text and tulsidas had no uh, respect for dalits or any such thing he uses it again in a patronizing way if at all and gandhi holds on to these ideas of caste and other things from whatever see lot of hindus believe they know hinduism and they read ramayana geeta bhagavad geeta um, and gandhi grew up like that the same text when ambedkar read it he gets angry over inequality gandhi loves these texts so he believes he is actually a sanatani hindu himself he calls himself sanatan uh, 
to explain to American readers is something that is eternal. That believes Hinduism and Vedic knowledge, they believe is eternal. It's come before time and it will remain after time, whatever they mean by it. So, it, it, for them, caste system is also eternal, it's an eternity. So, in this context, he's faced with Ambedkar who is attacking these things using their very things. If this is what your religion says, how will we live in a modern society? So, Gandhi is forced to confront Ambedkar. That's why he even begins to talk about Dalits and untouchables. At least to respond to Ambedkar is to take him a little seriously, I would say. Let's be a little fair to Gandhi. Let's be a little fair to Gandhi here. I would, I would, uh, I'm not beholden to him in any way as anybody would know who reads what I write. But at least he had the dignity to engage with Ambedkar. This is what scholars like Gopal Guru and others are saying. And they are saying that at least he engaged with him. Come on, that's not a, a bad thing to do. So, well, at least that created the scope for a certain dialogue. And Gandhi kept changing a little, a little, very little in his views on Varna. But Ambedkar writes another book in 1946 called What Congress and Gandhi Have Done to the Untouchables. And Ambedkar gives a very important interview to the BBC in 1955. Anybody can uh, and find it uh, uploaded on YouTube and other places. It's about a 15-16 minute uh, radio interview with BBC. In which he again says in 1955, well after Gandhi's death, eight years, nine years after Gandhi's death, that Gandhi was no Mahatma. I have read and uh, listened to that interview, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Ambedkar is very unsparing and unsentimental. Just because Gandhi died, he is not going to change his opinion about that. He mm -hmm. was one of the bitterest critics of Gandhi. And this man was a living saint as far as a majority of uh, Indians were concerned. By 1930s, Hindustan Times, in its front page, this is the research of a scholar from JNU called uh, Unamati Shama Sundar. Hmm? He's a cartoonist. And he has been collecting cartoons around Ambedkar from 1932 to 1956. What were the cartoons drawn on Ambedkar by mainstream newspapers? And in one of the newspaper uh, editions on October 2nd, Hindustan Times, which is the Congress mouthpiece, carried a front page of Gandhi cartoon, Bharat Mata, the, meaning India as a goddess mother, mm -hmm. is bowing to Mahatma Gandhi on his birthday. Yeah. This is a front page cartoon. So this was the level of propaganda which Gandhi managed. How could he manage that? He had A, capital and caste. Yeah. Uh, both of them. So he was a Banya who was very happy with the industrialists of back then and uh, even if he, when he was half naked, he was living in very big bungalows. Even when he was half naked and traveling in trains, there will be a retinue of 30 people going with like a, like a, like a uh, set of his uh, devotees and followers going with him. So Gandhi was a completely different proposition. Ambedkar did not have the money, the resources, the kind of uh, caste network that Gandhi could build. Yes. Yes, so, that, so that, that, it was an unequal that. battle. It was an unequal battle, but in terms of intellect, it was equally an unequal battle because Gandhi could not match Ambedkar's intellect. That's actually a very interesting observation. I really never thought about it in that way, but you make a very interesting point about uh, Gandhi was a very skilled politician versus Ambedkar, intellectual. Ambedkar and as in, uh, in, in terms of this political stratagems and other things, he, could, he, was, he, was, he was a good political thinker in the sense that how do I best negotiate what is good for my community and for the general good of India? Because when he is actually setting out to reform caste, it's just not the Dalits who is who's his constituency. It's all the people who practice caste. So when he does something like the Hindu code bill, his concern is, in fact, the Hindu code bill is a favor that Ambedkar does for the upper caste of India, especially the women. And they don't realize it. And to see Ambedkar as a Dalit leader is a big mistake. It's a huge mistake. He, yes, he, he did put the interest of the Dalit at the center of things. Because once you take care of Dalit interests, it means you take care of all other interests. That's how he saw things. Yeah. But, and he negotiated with the British or with the Congress or with anybody. He would, he was... Most vociferous in criticizing Nehru or uh, Patel, uh, Vallabhai Patel. But when an opportunity arose to be part of the government, be a law minister, he strategically took up those things. Because he thought if he doesn't go there and put the reservations into the constitution or other such protective I, mechanisms, 
Yes. You belong because in pure electoral politics, given that he belonged to a community of Mahars in Maharashtra, which was less than ten percent of the population, he could not have won elections, and he never won an election in India. His party, that's, whatever that's, whatever parties he started, they did okay. They did not do too well. No, that that's that's a very interesting observation. He basically navigated in in a way strategically to get to the parliamentary system in such a way that he can influence it. Based on your research and your understanding, what what were the key things which happened after him as part of mm-hmm. the Dalit movement, which 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 arises because of him? Hmm. See, much of what I'm going to say is going to be influenced by what Anand Teltumde has re- uh, written in the book that has just gone to press, which I keep mentioning earlier. Also, this is Republic of Caste: Thinking Equality in the Time of Neoliberal Hindutva. That's the full title of the book. And a scholar called Sunil Khilnani has written the foreword for the book. Many scholars have read it and appreciated the book. Gopal Guru has read and talked about it. And uh, here, Teltumde. Uh, like only he can do it. He is very critical of what has happened with the Dalit movement in post-Ambedkarite scenario. He is critical of both the Mayavati, uh, Kanshiram, BSP phenomena and its limitations. He is appreciative of what, is, what good comes out of it also. Uh, and especially of the Maharashtra-based Ambedkarite movement after 1956. See, Ambedkar gives the name for Republican Party of India uh, writes a document and before uh, elections can be contested, he passes away. The Dalit movement there, Teltumde argues, there was nobody who could fit into Ambedkar's shoes. And it was not as if if Ambedkar had lived and continued with Republican Party of India, there would have been great electoral victories for Dalits. Let's not, let's not delude ourselves into thinking that because by then Ambedkar had lost two elections personally. Uh, loss meaning he was the defeats were inflicted by the Congress party. And such, such humiliating defeats. Why do I say that? They would take somebody who was earlier working with Ambedkar, but did not belong to the Mahar caste, who was a Mang. That means it also proves that Ambedkar worked with Mahan, Mangs, you know, who was his personal assistant. They would take a Baburao Borkar, who, who, who nobody knows in history. Hmm? And he's somebody, uh, it's not as if I believe people should be educated uh, as much as Ambedkar to contest against him, but he was somebody who had just done 10th class. And he was fielded against Ambedkar and Ambedkar lost very bad, both in Bombay and in Bhandara. So Ambedkar was defeated twice, both in the general election and in the by-election, which uh, happened. So he realized that electoral politics is not really something that he was up to. And then when Republican Party of India is formed after his death, uh, they taste some moderate success and they have to go for alliance politics, etc. And then soon they split wide open. Today, there are about 25 to 30 factions of Republican Party of India inside and outside of Maharashtra. Most of them are letterhead organizations. Most of them try to negotiate for one seat, two seats, get into Rajya Sabha. You know, you have Ramdas, Athavale, various people, you know, uh, these names better probably. And there is Prakash Ambedkar, who is much better, he's more, uh, has more integrity, he happens to be Ambedkar's grandson. And he has started something called Bahujan Republic and everything combined together. But he is not somebody who is clamoring for electoral success, nor will he get too much electoral success with this kind of a platform. The others have either tied up with Congress or versions of the Congress or with the BJP and even with the Shiv Sena. Even with the Shiv Sena, there are Ambedkarite parties who have tied up. So there are all kinds of people who are passing off for Ambedkarites. Mm-hmm. And the other places where the small Dalit movements came up, inspired by Ambedkar, of course, Tamil Nadu, uh, Andhra Pradesh, and all these have worked, movements have emerged around massacres of Dalits. Mm-hmm. In Andhra Pradesh, where I come from, there was the Chundu and Karam Chedu massacre of 1984 and 1990. Huh? Karam Chedu happened in 84 and Chunduru happens in 1990. And this is the centenary year of Ambedkar. The centenary year of Ambedkar, which is 1990, played a very crucial role in a kind of a larger, I would say, social and cultural awakening, awakening among Dalits. It led to a, earlier, there was Marathi literature, Dalit literature, Dalit Panther. All this was mostly in Maharashtra. The Maharashtra renaissance of Dalit uh, writing, poetry, theatre, 
all kinds of things happened in the 1970s after mm. ambedkar's death whereas it took a while for that thing to percolate down to other and then there is the 1990 centenary year gave an opportunity to engage with ambedkar's writings and you should also remember very importantly that ambedkar's writings today there's a lot of controversy over navayana publishing uh, annihilation of caste because i am not a dalit and we are doing a critical edition with arundhati roy's introduction who is he to do this why this is an important and necessary controversy as i see it but till 1977 ambedkar's writings 60% of them published posthumously were lying in big trunks after his death everybody is hankered after his name and legacy but nobody cared for his writings and they almost were under threat of extinction these writings and the dalit movement in maharashtra filed case after case told the maharashtra government to publish it and put a case in the high court in nagpur two advocates one of them a khobragade if i remember they are mentioned in uh, riddles in hinduism they filed a case saying that ambedkar should be published by the maharashtra government and that is when they started taking it seriously and from the uh, from 1979 onwards they started publishing the books of ambedkar under the baba saheb ambedkar writings and speeches government volumes and these government volumes are not available anywhere even within maharashtra you have to go to some depot and try to buy it they are not available in bookstores so for the rest of other indian other than especially non dalits to come to know of ambedkar whether he what what he wrote where he wrote was almost next to impossible That's even true. for dalits you have to be passionate and yeah. uh, driven to even get a book of ambedkar That's that is the situation we have been in Huh? and i am talking about not maharashtra i am talking about the situation outside of maharashtra yeah and, and it's what, a shocking what? surprise because when annihilation of caste is published within 2 months ambedkar says 1500 copies of the book got sold and mahindra i am i'm ashamed to say that today when i published 3000 copies of riddles in hinduism in 2016 it takes me uh more than a year and a half to sell 3000 copies and that too because riddles in hinduism is a big book ambedkar is a big name kanchaalaya wrote the introduction he is a big name despite that 3000 copies if i have a regular book like eleanor zeliot's book on ambedkar it takes about a year and a half to sell 1500 copies so my feeling is in 1936 is ambedkar could sell 1500 copies of annihilation of his caste in 2 months it was a better time to be in some sense that's a very valid point that in those days and age even though people uh, whether it was gandhi whether it was other upper caste hindus or other uh, organizations who were who were trying to reform caste or trying to change the caste systems or the reform the hinduism there was a uh, a passion for understanding the system and trying to figure out how to change it versus in this day and age uh, what you are describing based on your experiences and um, based on what i've heard so far and my own understanding of this is that people elenor or gail omwed or your publishing of riddles in hinduism takes years for people to even find it or even be interested in it and what essentially that brings me to other point which is some of these uh, researchers like one of the early researchers was elenor uh, on on the ambedkar i mean that spring up so many different researcher who came from the west try to understand what ambedkar did and what was his phenomenon and what was his political contribution and in some ways they unearthed him from some of these researchers mm. helped collect in my view the amount of artifacts and the literature and their their legacy in some ways in my view what do you think about that very much very much see much before uh, see again i wouldn't just say scholars from the west they were particularly white scholars and predominantly white women whether you look at zeliot uh, or rosalind o'hanlon who worked on uh, pule and uh, after that gaylom wed all these scholars and even some of the uh, men who came mark jurgens mayer who worked on uh, adharmi movement in punjab and there's scores of them most of them tended to be white western liberal some of them were even gandhian you know zeliot was somebody who had sympathies for gandhi as well uh, but it was very important they did it but believe me it was they were building on something that unknown 
relatively uh, ignored people within the Dalit movement had also done this. I would give the example of Nanak Chandrattu, uh, who was Ambedkar's personal assistant, typist, somebody who took care of him. Uh, he was not a scholar or he was he was just a typist for uh, several purposes as Ambedkar himself knew. But he collected, he had a certain devotee. People like Ratu and others played a very key role, as did Bhagwan Das. And several people who are kind of uh, relatively lesser known and very important in this context is to mention the work of Vasant Moon and Meenakshi Moon and others in the Moon family. Because they put together not only, if you look at uh, Zeliad's book on Ambedkar, which we published uh, 30 years after she actually uh, did her PhD uh, in 2013, uh, in that she has a list of acknowledgements towards the end, which runs to four pages and it's a list of names. Almost the who is who of Maharashtra's Dalit movement is there. So these are the people, and and also remember uh, Mahindra, that Dalits back then did not have enough uh, educational resources, material resources after Ambedkar's day to really know how to go about prison. And the government was indifferent. The government did nothing. They have so many Gandhi memorials, so many Nehru things. Today, you cannot publish um, uh, Nehru's writings just like that. You have to take permission from Sonia Gandhi. They have copyright issues that this with Ambedkar it became a free for all. Either the it's because the Dalit movement people people like Teltumde are also very critical of the Dalit movement for being worshipful of Ambedkar, getting it into a bhakti mode and uh, not really caring for his writings much. It is true. It's it's a, it's it's an accusation which holds up. But if the Dalit movement had not held aloft Ambedkar on their heads, literally carrying his picture and statues and other things around till 1990. The rest of these so-called uh, non-Dalit progressives who are today engaging with Ambedkar would not have engaged with Ambedkar. Suppose he had not been celebrated as a Bhakti hero for 30 years. Let's assume nothing happened. Then you and I would not be having this conversation. So it's, it's easy to belittle the Dalit movement for being uh, cultish around Ambedkar. And how it actually, I mean, uh, Teltumde is right in saying that that created the way for BJP also to getting into the bhakti worship mode. Yeah. I mean, yesterday's news, today's news, uh, the UP government led by a monk, you know, we have a chief minister who's a monk in UP. Uh, he went and painted Ambedkar's statue in a saffron color. Yes. And very promptly, the next day it was painted in blue color. Uh, so these are, the, these are the petty things that are happening. But if they had not been the Dalit movement, which carried the cultural memory of Ambedkar through songs, through pamphlets. And in this context, a lot of Dalits have worked on this. But in English, I published a book by Sharmila Rege uh, called Against the Madness of Manu, which in its introduction looks at the pamphlet culture, the music culture, and the several other ways in which congregations around Ambedkar have happened. So, especially when 90, the chances of Dalits become graduates in the 1940s, uh, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, Dalit graduates were less than 1.5% of the population. Today, the figure hovers around 4.4% uh, out of 100. But believe me, you have to have a comparative sense. Uh, among the non-Dalits, among the rest of the society, number of total number of graduates in India hovers around 8%. Mm-hmm. And among the Dalits, it's half, about 4.4%. And back then, so imagine the, in, in the 50s and 60s, there were just two Dalits graduating. Yeah. So what are the chances? So we, we should be, we should, we can't undo history. We are grateful for Zeliot, Omvet, Mark Jurgens, and others who came and did this thing. But it was also because there was not enough people. And we should also wonder why did non-Dalit, like progressive Brahmins, educated elite people, why did they not undertake writing uh, biographies of Ambedkar, critical engagements with Ambedkar, till... Uh, this uh, so uh, introduction of Arundhati Roy, which was of course pretty long at thirty thousand words, etc., which has been criticized for that also. Before that, Mahendra, I have been asking and looking around for one essay on annihilation of caste of mm. more than five thousand words. I mean, a proper long essay engagement in any Indian language has not existed. It does not exist. That's a fascinating fact, which you are just describing. That the even though. Uh, there has been a lot of talks and appropriation of Ambedkar and his legacy. Nobody is really engaging with his work as such. And the amount of work which he has done and published, I, I would say this to the listeners and 
if you read his work you will realize the extent and the depth of his understanding of the hindu society and indian society at that point of time the depth of economic understanding the de- the depth of social understanding and he comes across as a person who's making a very holistic argument and a very rational argument and whether mm-hmm. you can agree with him or disagree with him is a very different perspective based on whether you like his arguments or not but i have not been able to put down some of his uh, work or his books or other other things which i have found online which you mentioned just the maharashtra government took up this initiative purely mm. based on the intellectual arguments which he is making and purely based on so much rationalism it's very objective what i find it disappointing and which is what you are describing is that so many people are not even uh, even aware and they were never helped to engage with this kind of material which he put together and put forth during his lifetime and mm. even after his lifetime like as you mentioned there was an essay of a long form on this book so that brings me to people can call the constitution of india which he wrote as a victory in many ways on the ground as you just pointed out mm. not much has changed even though we have probably made progress in the psyche of caste consciousness mm. but it itself exists i would like to wrap up bringing it back to you and i admire your passion and work which you have done in bringing all of this publications uh, without people like you and your publication many of these writings will never be seen in the world so i really yeah. thank you for that i'm grateful you appreciate it so much i would not exist and avayana would not really be reason to function without you know the dalit movement which has created this uh, held up this whole thing for the last 60 70 years after no, that's true that. that's true huh? that's true but my small my small role is in probably trying to this is my, I, if you realize during the course of this interview i talked about non dalit indifference you know ambedkar also talks about indifferentism of the non dalits how nothing nothing seems to shake them and i for one have been touched by ambedkar into saying okay i'm not going to keep quiet so the no, dalits no, may no, have I, problems dalits may have problems with somebody like me non dalit brahmin born etc saying this but it is important that i uh, do what i do to try to take this debate to the non dalits if they are going to read a book because arundhati roy wrote an introduction that yes. is exactly the purpose uh, that's no i i i absolutely agree with that uh, purpose and the motive and the intent behind it and so which leads me to the next and the last question which would i would like to wrap up with is that there was uh, some of the work which is coming out of your publication you mentioned anantel tumde's book for our listeners if if uh, if they want to uh, know more about navyana or want to know more about the books you are publishing where should they go and check and the find the best places of course our website some of our books like annihilation of caste have been published in the uk and us by verso you know so you can buy the us uk edition as well there's epub version as well uh but for all other titles not most of our titles are available only in india and we ship them uh for your them uh, abroad so you can visit our website follow us on our facebook page uh so yes there a website is the best place to get to know us thank you thank you anand thank you for your time and i look forward to talking to you more about other books which you have published and hopefully we'll have other interviews and as as engaging as we had this time sure mahendra thanks so much for uh including me in this